Let's set things up today. Let's set things up by thinking about one of the most difficult things to say in the English language. Maybe you've tried to say this before and you found yourself tongue-tied. Maybe these words, you've, you've tried to get them out of your mouth, but you found yourself unable to speak these words. And these are not difficult words to say, but when we string them together and we try to present them, they are some of the most difficult words to come out of our mouth. Here are the words. Are you ready? I was wrong. <laughs> when was the last time you, you had to say those words? How does it usually come out? Is it kind of like, I was uh, I was wrong. And you just kind of like speed it out as quick as you can. Ah, I was wrong, right? And when we say this, oftentimes we say these words when we have done something wrong. So if you have offended someone, if you have done something that was wrong to someone else, and you get to that spot where you have to own it, and you have to say those words, you, you say those words to someone, here's what I did, it was wrong, I was wrong. Now, those are hard words to say about our actions, but but I believe those words are even more difficult to say about our beliefs. You ever had a moment when you were reading the scripture? And as you read the scripture, you came to a spot where it was challenging your, your foundational beliefs, or it was challenging your worldview, or it was challenging your perspective. And you might say something like, well, I've always believed this, but as I read the word here, and I realized that my thinking on this was incorrect. I think it's, it's even more difficult not to say I was wrong simply about our actions, but it's even more difficult to say I was wrong when it comes to our beliefs. I share this with you because if we turn a corner and we begin to look at this church in Thyatira, what we're going to see is this is a church that they had all of the right actions. This was a church that was doing so many things well. In fact, Jesus gives them a list describing the things that they were doing that were awesome. Well, it's high praise from Jesus. But the problem is they, they had the right actions they were compromising on their beliefs. They, they were allowing their beliefs and, and what was being presented in their church, that they were allowing the wrong things to be taught. They were believing the wrong things. See, this leads us to our big idea today. As we look at this, this passage, this is the, the fourth church. We've been looking at these, these seven churches of Revelation, and we're now in the fourth church. And what we're going to see as our big idea is that a church cannot continue to do good but believe wrong forever. A church cannot be a church that does all sorts of incredible things in this community and in the world, and at the same time compromise on its beliefs according to God's word. It, it, those two things do not match. They don't match. Now, if you, you haven't been around for a while, if you're joining us today, I want to catch you up to speed a little bit. We are in a series that is based out of chapters two and three in the book of Revelation. And these, these two chapters, Jesus himself is speaking to seven specific churches. But, but as he does, every church, every church needs to examine itself. Every church needs to wrestle with the words of Jesus in this passage and say, where are the ways that we are matching this church that are good? And where are the ways that we are matching this church that are, that are not so good? And this is, this is a very timely series for us because we, we've just spent two years with our world somewhat upside down. 
The church has changed. The world has changed. Even this specific church, Valley, has changed. There are new faces and there are faces that used to be here that are not. This has been a, this has been a roller coaster ride over these last few years. And so now, as we really start to gather again, as we really start to say, what has God called us to be? Here's the worst thing we could do. The worst thing is we start to gather together and we say, well, what do I want the church to look like? Or what do I feel like church should be? Or what, do, what are my preferences? Th- that would get us down the wrong road. But instead, we're just taking a, these seven weeks. Say, what, is, what does Jesus say to the churches? What does Jesus' design look like? What would Jesus have us do and not do? What would Jesus have us believe and not believe? What would Jesus have us focus on? And so that catches you up to speed today as we land in this fourth church now, the church in Thyatira, or Thyatira this, this was a, a, probably a small church at, 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 in a pretty much obscure city. Previously, these churches we've looked at, they have been probably, I mean, they've, they've been in massive cities that are full of economic wealth and, and so many great things happening. This is probably a small church in a pretty obscure city. And just like with all the other churches, Jesus begins by describing himself. And this is usually where we get tripped up time-wise for our sermons, because the the picture of Jesus is so marvelous. Let's start there. Let's look at how Jesus describes himself. Let's look at what Jesus says to this church as he commends it. And then let's look at how Jesus corrects his church as well. Look with me. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. We're going to start and we're going to see that Jesus is the holy Son of God. Jesus is the perfect, pure, divine Son of God. Let me show you what I mean. Revelation 2.18, Jesus says, And to the angel of the church of Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. You, you, you pick up on those three descriptions Jesus uses of himself. Jesus describes himself in three ways to this church. Let, let's pick these up. The very first thing Jesus says, he says he is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. This term son of God is used 46 times in the New Testament. This is the only place in the book of Revelation that this term is used. And it's actually Jesus himself describing himself. But this really is a term that is meant to indicate his divinity. That Jesus is God in the flesh. In fact, the same author of Revelation, this is John, he's getting a heavenly vision. The same author, he wrote a gospel, the gospel of John. And toward the end of the gospel of John, John uses the same exact phrase, not only to describe Jesus, but to describe your reaction to Jesus the intended reaction of the entirety of his book. John chapter 20, if you were to look at verse 31, John is coming to the end and he has told all of these stories. He has shared so much of Jesus's teaching. He's talked about the signs that Jesus has performed. And then he gets to verse 31 and he says this. He says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior. And then listen, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
John's purpose in writing his gospel is so that you, you will get a picture of who Jesus is and that you will believe that Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, that you will believe that he is the Son of God, the divine Son of God, the second person in the triune God who has existed for all eternity, and that by believing in him, you will have life in his name. Now, what is it that we are to believe in him? This is, this is the baseline. This is the foundation of every time we gather for worship. This is the foundation of everything we do as believers. What do we believe? Well, what did John present Jesus to be? The Christ. This is a messianic term. This is Jesus being the king or the savior. How did Jesus prove that he was king and savior? Well, he, he lived a perfect, sinless life. Never once erring, never once doing the opposite of what the heavenly father would have him do. And then he died a substitutionary death. He took all of your sin and all of your shame. He took all of my guilt and he said, I'm going to take all of that with me and I'm going to take it and I'm going to carry it to the cross and I'm going to pay the price for it completely. He died and paid the price for our sins, but he did not stay in the grave. He was buried, and on the third day, he was resurrected victoriously. So the scripture says that everyone and anyone who believes, who believes this of Christ, they're saved. This is, this is the term John uses. He says that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then, Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, Jesus, in his description of himself, he says, I want you to write this to the church in Thyatira. I want you to write to them that I am the Son of God. He's just being so clear right now in who he is. And then he has two additional descriptors of himself here. Can you notice what they are in the text? Look at, look at verse 18. The next descriptor is that he has, he has eyes like a flame. What we see next is that the holy son of God can see everything. These eyes like a flame, this is, this is two images symbolically, right? The first is the flame, which is symbolically it has to do with purification or holiness. This is the idea that Jesus is holy, but not only that, his eyes, that they're like a flame. This means that he can see into the very core of every human being. That there is nothing that is hidden from his gaze, this reminds us that when we gather for a worship service, you can come with your nicest clothes and your biggest smile, and you can, you can show up saying, oh yeah, my life is great and everything is good and I'm walking with the Lord, and you can fool everyone in this room. You can fool me easily. <laughs> but you know who you can't fool? You cannot fool the one that has eyes like a flame of fire who sees into the very depth of your soul. Nothing is hidden from his gaze. This is Jesus describing himself. This is going to come into play in just a moment when we see some more of what he says to this church. He says, he says I am the son of God. I have eyes like a flame of fire. And then it's, I have feet as burnished bronze. Not only does the Holy Son of God see everything, but the Holy Son of God is stronger than anything. I don't know if you imagine a pair of 
nice Nike shoes that are bronze colored on Jesus, but that's, that's not the image here. The image here is, first of all, they're burnished, they're, they're purified, and that they're bronze, they're, they're a precious metal. We're actually not exactly sure what this metal is technically is, but the point here is that his feet are like metal so that there is nothing that can prevent him. That he can, he can break through any door, that he can crash through any wall, that there is nothing that can stop Jesus from going wherever he wants to go. He has access not only to the very core of who you are with his vision, but there is nothing that can stop him. He is stronger than anything. What did we just sing? How majestic is your name in all the earth. This is, this is the one whose name is majestic. Jesus, the son of God, the holy one who sees and can go anywhere. And this holy one, he now begins to commend this church in Thyatira. He has some, some wonderful things to say to this church. And so as we look at this, here's what we should be thinking at Valley. We should be saying, does our church match this? Are these descriptions that Jesus could give us? Would he say the same thing about us? And so let's see what Jesus commends. Jesus commends good work. Verse 19. Verse 19, Jesus says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Now, Jesus, here's what he says. He says, he says I, I see the good things you're doing. I know your works. He commends them. And what do we do with that as a church? We say, okay, well, that means the church should do the right works. We should do the right works. We should do good things. So what are the works that are good? Well, he says, I know your works. And then in the language, if you were to follow it, the rest of the words are, are like qualifiers or describers of that word works. And so what are the good works that Jesus commends in a church? First of all, he says, your love. Your love. You realize, not, not just the Sunday morning gathering, but when, when the church gathers on Sunday, this should be a place where, where just the air we breathe, it feels like everyone here loves each other. This is the kind of love where you are, where you're committed to each other. This is the kind of love where you are looking out for what's best for one another. This is the kind of love where you're not approaching everyone with selfishness and selfish desire saying, what can I get out of this person? Or what do I want for this person? Or this person annoys me and so I just ignore them. Or this person always wants to talk too long and so I do my best to, to sneak out the side door before they come to me. This is the kind of church where we love where we endeavor to make sure every person feels loved, where we endeavor to make sure every person knows that not only they're loved by one another, but that is a love that is a reflection of Christ's love for them. He says, I know your works, your love. And the next word is your faith. This is the foundation of our love, right? Our love is not the kind of love that's birthed out of saying, oh, we, we're going we're gonna to love each other so that God will approve us. No, this is, this is a love that is birthed out of our faith. Our faith in, in the Christ, the Son of God. Our faith in Jesus who died and rose again, who has paid the price for all of our sins. This is, this is the kind of work we do. This is the kind of work that's it's done and it's rooted in our faith. This reminds us why we do the work we do, right? 
We don't do our work so that the culture around us will say good things about Valley. We don't do our work so we can get a plaque and hang on the wall here and here. We don't do the good work that we do so we can pat ourselves on the back. We do good work because it's the work of, of faith, of trust in the Lord. He says your love, your faith, and then your service. This is simply the idea of actually doing work. This is when you get your fingers and your hands dirty. This is when you begin to sacrifice for one another. Sometimes this is sacrificial in terms of our resources, maybe our finances. We care for each other if someone's down and out, and so we serve them that way. Sometimes this is just giving our time. Sometimes this is showing up with a meal. Sometimes this is it's the service in the community where we're caring for those who are homeless or who are poor or who are struggling with addiction. This is the kind of service when, we are, when we're sacrificially caring for others. And then the last descriptor here, he says, the works of patient endurance. Patient endurance. You can love someone for a day. It goes okay, right? But what about the next day? And what about a few weeks? And then what if you add service onto that? And what if you, you maybe after a few weeks, it turns into a few years, and, and maybe it's decades. And you get to that spot where, you're tired, and it's work, but you don't give up. Where you keep in love and in faith, you, you, you endure as you serve others. This is the kind of right work that Jesus commends. Jesus, he says, I know your works. I know all of these great things and the way you're doing it. I commend you for that. And so the church should do the right works. But then secondly, the church should do refining works. The church should do refining works. Look at the end of verse 19. He says, and that your latter works exceed the first well, here's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you, you, you started your faith by serving me. You trusted in the gospel and you began to serve me as a reflection of your gratitude and love. And he looks at this church and he says, guess what? You're doing even more now. You are improving. You are pressing forward. You know, this reminds us that there is no such thing as a Christian that retires from service to the Lord. I've had a few conversations that have broken my heart with people. I've heard people say things like, well, you know, I've done this ministry and I've done this service and I've served in this way and I've done this work and, and you know, it's time for someone else to do those things. I've, I've done enough. That's not the kind of service attitude that Jesus commends. There's no such thing as retiring from serving the Lord. Now, we remember, we, we, don't, we don't serve the Lord for, for salvation's sake. We don't serve the Lord so that he'll finally say, okay, now you've done enough that I'll love you. No, no, that's the opposite. We serve out of his love that he's given. We serve out of the acceptance that we've already received. We've been adopted. We've been made new. We've been made whole. But, but Jesus commends the life that doesn't give up, whose works continue to improve, Jesus commends good works. Let me ask you, I have a certain perspective on Valley. I can see portions of the church with some clarity, but I don't get to see all of the church perfectly. You see parts of our church family that I, I have no visibility into at all. 
Let me ask you, are these words that Jesus might say to us as a church? If Jesus were to come and look at us as Valley Christian Fellowship, would he look at us and would he say, I see your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. I see that your latter works, what you're doing now is even better than your first ones. I see you pressing forward. Could he say that? Or might he say, I see your works. Where, where is the love? Where is the faith? Where is the service? Why are you so quick to give up? Why do you seem to be letting off the gas instead of pressing it down and moving forward? See, we want to be the kind of church based in the gospel truth of Jesus and his death and resurrection where we are doing the works that Jesus commends. But this is not everything he says to this church. He, he, he moves from his commendation and now he begins to give them a correction. And what we're going to see next is Jesus, he does not tolerate a church that tolerates false teaching. Jesus, he, he does not tolerate a church that tolerates false or wrong or evil teaching. You know, if you remember that church in Ephesus, the very first church, they were a church that had all the right doctrine, but they had lost or they had left their first love. They had the right teaching, but not the right works. Thyatira is, it's the opposite. They, they've got the right works, but they're compromising greatly on their teaching. Follow along, verse 20. Revelation 2, verse 20. Jesus' words, he says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. You notice that word, tolerate. See, here's, here's what it looks like. This woman, Jezebel, was not operating in secret. She wasn't doing things that no one else in the church knew about. She was, she was doing what this, these accusations we're going to flesh out in a moment. She was doing it plain, open daylight. And the church, they didn't do anything about it. He says, you, you tolerate See, church, here, here's, here's where we're going to start as we look through this verse in the next few. We need to see that tolerance is not the virtue that you might think it is. T tolerance is not the virtue that we often think it is. See, we are, we are trained from an early age in this culture that we live in. We are, we are fed, we are given the cup of, of the Kool-Aid, which is this word, tolerance. When we're talking about tolerance, we're talking about the idea that, that you have no right whatsoever to tell someone that their beliefs are wrong or that their actions are wrong. This is the kind of tolerance that we're taught. Now, I remember lessons in tolerance when I was in grade school, and that was a number of years ago. This is the idea that, that no one has any right to say anything to anyone else about what is right and what is acceptable, what is true, and what is false. In our culture, it thrives on this idea of tolerance. And, and here's, here's the difficulty. This idea of tolerance, it is, it's so pervasive in the culture that without realizing it, it often becomes part of our thinking within the church. 
or within the church, we begin to think, you know what, I don't really have any right to say anything about anyone else, and no one else has any right to say anything about me and what I believe and what I, how I act. And honestly, that would be absolutely true if it was not for this. See, the standard is not my feelings or my judgments. The standard is not what you think is right or what you think is wrong. The standard is not what any human being decides is right or is wrong. The standard is the infallible, inerrant word of God. That, that is the standard. And so this church, they are tolerating this woman Jezebel. That word tolerate means to permit or to allow or to let it continue. This is what the church is doing. And then it begins to describe what they're doing. They're tolerating Jezebel. Now, Jezebel, this is a, this is a Bible word that a, that a Jewish person, or they would know who this is talking about. This is a historical figure. And this was the wife of King Ahab. King Ahab was a wicked, evil king, and his wife Jezebel, she was a wicked and evil woman. She was the greatest proponent of what we would call state-sponsored idolatry. She was a worshiper of the false pagan god Baal, and she would lead the people of Israel, lead them far from the one true God, Yahweh, to worship this evil pagan god. She would fund all the prophets of Baal. In fact, if you, if you have any familiarity, I don't have the time to flesh it as out. I wish I did. But if you remember the story of Mount Carmel with Elijah and the 400 prophets of Baal, she was, she was the one that Elijah ran from after all of that. This is the historical figure Jezebel. Now, in Revelation 2, Jesus is not saying that Jezebel has been reincarnated and now it's the same exact person. Jesus is saying that there is a woman who is like that in their church. There is a woman who is bringing this kind of false teaching. There is a woman who is leading them astray. This is what he's saying. And so in that church, this is a, a false teacher who is leading people not just in wrong belief, but in wrong action. It says she calls herself, notice the language here. Not that she is a prophetess, but she calls herself a prophetess. This is her saying, I am going to stand in front of God's people and I'm going to authoritatively speak to them saying this is what God has said. This is, this is the condemnation for this church. Now, how in the world does this apply today? Well, application point number one, don't name your daughter Jezebel, okay? <laughs> it's probably not a good term. You really want to know how this applies today? If we're going to go here today, I, I need you to answer a question in your mind. Don't answer it out loud. This morning, do you want to hear the clear teaching of the Scripture? I, I, I would like to present the clear teaching of the Scripture and how this applies today. But this is not going to be easy for some of us. This is going to challenge that Kool-Aid of tolerance that we drink all the time. This is going to press against the spirit of the age that wages war against the church and the way we view even ministry today. So if, if you're willing to follow along with God's word, lean in a little bit. If not, do everything you can to maybe put in your headphones and you, you might want to do that. We're going we're gonna to dive into the deep end for a little bit. 
How does this apply to the church today? Now, I want you to turn to, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I want us to look at a passage that is oftentimes ignored, many times twisted, or, or just avoided at all costs in, in church culture today because, because it offends our sensibilities. It offends the way we want things to be. 1 Timothy chapter 2 we're going to talk about not just this woman Jezebel who said she was a prophetess, but we're going to talk about in the church today, God's perspective. God's perspective on authority and on teaching. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Here is what Paul, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, here is what Paul is writes as God inspires. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. This, this is offensive to everything in our culture. But, but this is God's word. Oftentimes we approach this and we say, okay, I do not permit a woman, this is talking about the gathered church setting, says I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. This is Paul saying that in the church setting that, that a woman is not to be an elder, we can, we can talk about that another time if we want, nor should a woman give the authoritative word of God speaking over the church. Now, oftentimes people look at this and say, well, you know what? That was, that was a specific issue in that church. Timothy is in Ephesus. And you know what? There, there were some women there that were kind of like pushing against things and they were causing problems. And so this is a specific instruction for a specific church at a specific time. And it does not apply to any other in every church. No, no, we can maybe find some principles there, but that's not what Paul is saying. That would be wonderful, except Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, gives three reasons. I want you to walk with me through these reasons. Reason number one, verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. The, the very first reason that Paul writes for a woman not to have authority or to teach in the church is because Adam was formed first and not Eve. Does that make Adam better? No. Does that make Adam superior? No. But the very first reason is creation order. God created Adam, and then God created Eve. He created them to be a perfect complement to each other, and it's beautiful when it works out the way it's meant to. But, but God says, I, I'm going to make man, and I'm going to make woman. And as I make man first, as I create him first, I am going to give him a responsibility of leading. Reason number one is creation order. Now notice, when God created Adam and Eve, there was no sin in the world. This very first reason, this is a reason that is pre-fall, pre-sin, pre-serpent, pre-temptation. This is when everything was hunky-dory. That's a theological term, by the way. Everything was just perfect. There, there was no evil between man and woman at that point at all. This is reason number one. Reason number two. Verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now we read this, and, and gals, you might think, wait, are you saying I'm more easily deceived than men? You, you saying I'm, I'm not as smart as a guy? No, 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 that's not what this is saying. Listen, this is not a, 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 an observation about intellect at all. There, there are plenty of very intelligent women in this church, many more intelligent than me, no doubt about that. But here's what this is saying, saying that there are different weaknesses. 
there are different weaknesses. Let me show you what I mean. Men, you have to tame your anger in ways that most women never have to deal with. Right? How about this? Let's press it even more. Men, you have to tame your lust in ways that most women doesn't even cross their mind. And women, you have to tame your emotions in ways that, if we're honest, leave most of us guys confused. Is one better or worse? No. That's not what this is saying. This is saying we have different weaknesses. We have different vulnerabilities. The vulnerability that is being described here for Eve or for women is saying that there is a vulnerability in the temptation that happened that still exists today. We have different vulnerabilities. Reason number three, verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now I know what you're thinking. Aha, there it is. That's heresy right there. You talking about a woman can be saved and go to heaven if they have children? That's got to be false teaching. No, contextually, what is this teaching? This is teaching that she's going to be saved, not saved and go to heaven, but she will be saved from the temptation of desiring to teach and exercise authority within the church. Reason number three is different roles. Reason number three, simply put, is saying that there is, there is a, a salvation from a certain kind of temptation when we properly understand our roles. You don't believe me, I know. Here's the deal. Our culture teaches the opposite all the time. But regardless of what you read or who you find is USA Today's woman of the year, listen very carefully. A man is a man and a woman is a woman. Guys, no matter how hard you try, you cannot have a baby. It's not how the biology God designed works. You can't do it. That's the point this is making here. The point it's making is that men have a role and woman woman has a role. And again, does this mean one is better than the other? No. It means that we're different. Why are we different? Because of God's beautiful design. This is why we're different. This is what the scripture is teaching here. This is, this, is what, this is what the root issue is in this church in Thyatira. They are tolerating this. They are tolerating false teaching. In fact, if you turn back with me to, to verse 20, they are tolerating false teaching and evil living. Jesus says, but I have this against you that you tolerate that a woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, the last few weeks, we've talked about both sexual immorality and and idolatry. And so I'm not going to cover that today simply because of the sake of time. But if you want to know what this is meaning, just go even last week's message talked about this. But but here's here's where the text goes next. And this is is amazing. If, If you're a little frustrated by what you've heard, okay, I can understand that. But, but what I want you to see happens next is astounding. Here's what happens next. 
You have this church that's tolerating evil teaching and evil practice, and the next words out of Jesus' mouth are words that demonstrate his grace. What you see is that Jesus still offers grace. Look at verse 21, the very next verse. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. You guys see what's happening here? Jesus sees this church. He sees it with perfect clarity. He's got eyes of flaming fire. There's nothing hidden from his sight. And when he sees this church is going sideways and the way they're approaching ministry, the way they're being taught, look, he's not standing there with a club waiting for the very first moment they step out of line so he can just bring it down on them. No, quite the opposite. He says, I have given time for repentance. This is how Jesus works in our lives. Maybe you're someone that was sitting here and we start talking about how Jesus has eyes that are like a flaming fire and he sees into the very core of who you are and you know the things in your life that are not good and the things in your life that are not right and the things in your life that need to be repented of and you, you might just squirm in your seat a little bit and you just play it cool, don't act up, don't, don't let anyone know what's going on in my life. But listen right now, Jesus, you know what he's doing? He's giving you time to repent. He's not waiting for you to flick you off the face of the earth or to smash you. He wants you to repent. He wants you to turn back to him. He wants you to turn in faith and repentance to him. And this, this doesn't even just show, I mean, this is how Jesus responds to us. This reminds us of how we in the church should respond to sin. When someone sins, our response is not, all right, you go grab a rope, you go get a pitchfork, and I'll get the torch, right? Let's go get them, right? No, no. You know what our response in the church is? Is is let's help this person. Let's give them time. Let's help them come to a spot where they repent. Galatians 6.1. If anyone is caught in, in temptation, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Spirit of gentleness is really the reflection of Jesus' heart. Jesus gave her time to repent. The tragedy of this story is that she was unwilling to repent. The next thing you see is that Jesus eventually will judge. Verse 22. It says, I've given her time to repent. Verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they Repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. To throw someone on a sick bed is a Hebrew idiom for saying, I'm going to make them sick. Jesus says, I'm going to make her sick. He says, in her followers, I'm going to give them great tribulation. It is, I'm not going to make it easy for them. I'm going to make it hard for them. Why? So they'll repent. And it says, her children, I'll bring death to them. Now, this scripture is not entirely clear. I can't stand up here and say, this is talking about our biological children or this is talking about our followers. I don't know. I don't know if this is talking about physical death or spiritual death. It's not entirely clear. But, but what I know is that, that Jesus eventually will judge those who are unrepentant. And it is not a judgment that anyone wants to stand, sign up for. It's not a judgment that we want to embrace. It, it, quite the opposite. This is, this is designed to make us turn in repentance. And Jesus, he still gives grace Jesus, he eventually will judge, but but if we keep following this passage, we see that Jesus 
ultimately is sovereign. And Jesus, he ultimately, he wants to be seen as the one who is above all, the one who knows all, the one who rules all, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Pick up with me at the end of verse 23. Let me show you what I mean. It says, and all the churches. How many of them? All. Jesus says, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Jesus, as he continues here, he shows three ways that he will ultimately be seen as sovereign. First of all, all the churches will know he sovereignly searches hearts. Jesus is, when he comes and he brings judgment to this church, he is doing it so that everyone in the church, so that all the churches know what? That Jesus has the eyes like flaming fire, that he is the one who searches not just hearts and minds, that he is the one that sees into the very core of every being. He will not be mocked. He, he doesn't want people running around being like, ooh, pull the fast one on Jesus. Like, look at how good I am at hiding my rebellion and at hiding my sin. Jesus says, no, all the churches will know that I am the one that searches hearts and minds. Secondly, all the churches will know he sovereignly settles accounts. All the churches will know that he is the one who sovereignly brings everyone into a place where they, they, they settle accounts with Jesus. It says, and I will give to each of you according, here's that word again, your works. This is not salvation. This is not heaven or hell. This is, this is the ultimate, this is the, the judgment of our works. According to our works, he's going to settle accounts. This goes back to that commendation for that church. He says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. These are the things that a believer is to aim themselves at. Not for, oh, God's going to approve of me, but because of the gospel. And Jesus says, I know that. I know that. All the churches will know he sovereignly settles accounts. And then finally, all the churches will know that he sovereignly spares burden. He sees these believers in Thyatira who are, who are holding on to the little they have. He says, I'm not going to add more burden to you. I'm not going to add more weight to you. I'm not going to make things harder for you that are trying to do what's right. Look at verse 24. He says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. He says, you're not following Jezebel. You're not pursuing the wrong kind of teaching. These deep things of Satan, we don't know if they're things about Satan or if they're just satanic teaching. We don't know if this is what those false heretical teachers are calling them or maybe this is Jesus' description of bad teaching, the deep things of Satan. But he says, those who are, who are not pursuing those evil teachings, he says, I'm not gonna give you any more burden. I'm not gonna give you any more burden. See, here's what Jesus wants. Jesus wants a church that not only does good work, but a church that holds to true, sound doctrine. A church that just does good work. This is called the social gospel, where we just do good things in our society, but we don't have any theological grounding. We have to avoid being that. 
Instead, Jesus wants both full-fledged, both hands holding on. In fact, what we see as this text comes to a conclusion is that Jesus calls his church to victory. This is what victory is. It's holding on to both good work and good doctrine. Verses 25 through 28 says, Only hold fast to what you have until I come. Hold fast, Jesus says. He says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, I will give him authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself has, have received authority from the Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is victory. This is the victor. Just break this down. Here's who the victor is. The victor, first of all, is the one who holds fast. The one who holds fast. Jesus says, hold fast. This is, this is the, the, I'm going to have my knuckles turn white as I hold as tight as I can. What does he say to hold fast to? He says, hold fast to what you have. What, what do we have? First of all, we hold fast to the gospel. This goes without saying, and yet this has to be said over and over and over again. We hold fast that Jesus, he is the only way to be saved, that Jesus is going to be King of kings and Lord of lords, that Jesus died and rose again to save me, not because of anything good at all in myself. This is what we hold fast to. We hold fast to the gospel. Secondly, we hold fast to sound teaching. Sound teaching. The, this, this is the opposite of saying something like this. Well, you know, I believe in Jesus, and so all that other theology stuff doesn't really matter. All that other stuff in there, you know, as long as you and I, as long as we believe in Jesus, none of that other stuff matters. No, no, listen, that is, that is the opposite of holding fast to sound teaching. All of it matters. All of it is the word of God. All of it needs to be understood in context. All of it is to be clung to. We hold fast to the gospel. Secondly, we hold fast to sound teaching. And then third, we hold fast to good works. This is what that church was already doing. He says, keep doing that. Keep holding fast to your good work. The victor is the one who holds fast. Secondly, the victor shares in Jesus' authority. The shares in Jesus' authority, verses 26 and 27. I just want you to mark that. I'm not going to read it right now, but I want you to write in your notes, Psalm chapter 2. Go home today. Here's your homework. Go home today. Read Psalm chapter 2, and then read Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, and see the authority that God the Father has given Jesus, and see that Jesus is going to have you share in his authority. This is a promise of Jesus. Third, the victor shares in Jesus' presence. Verse 28, Jesus says, and I will give him the morning star. This is, uh, this is like an alarm clock. It gets you up at like 4.30 every morning. It just all those early risers are like, thank God, I love it. Let's get it going, right? Forget, forget keeping daylight savings time, right? No, what, what is the morning star? The morning star is Jesus himself. Revelation 22, verse 16. Revelation 22, verse 16 defines, it interprets the morning star for us. Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify about these things for the churches. Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. You know what this promise is? 
This is the promise that for all eternity, you will enjoy the glory of Jesus as he illuminates heaven forever. And that will be enough. To, to be in his presence forever in the glory of Christ, this is what the victor receives. Then it finally says the victor has ear to hear. Verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has ear to hear. Let me, let me ask you, are you willing to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches? Are you willing this morning to set aside whatever uh, presuppositions you have about truth or about the Bible or about God or about the church? Are you willing not to come before me, but in, in a few moments, are you willing to, to bow your head before God the Father after hearing everything we've talked about today? And are you willing to go to him? And if there's anything that does not match in your mind what you've just learned, are you willing to go and say those, those really hard words, not to me, but to God? I was wrong. Are you willing to go to him right now and say, I want my mind, my thinking, my perspective, my worldview. I don't want to come with bias. I want what you say. I do not want to tolerate bad teaching. I don't want to tolerate watered-down truth. I want your word. I want to give you a moment to do that. We've covered a lot today. I want to give you just a moment. You and the Lord go before him. And, and, and maybe you, you just want to thank him for his word. Maybe you, everything you've heard today, you're like, praise God, praise God. If that's you, awesome. Thank him for the glory of his word. But maybe you're sitting there saying, I don't like what I just heard, but I want to believe because I know it's God's word and I want to trust it's good. If that's you. Take this moment. Go humbly before the Lord. Remember that his word is good, that his ways are true. After that, I'll pray for us and we'll continue in worship. Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you today confessing that our thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are, are higher than our ways. God, we, we ask for your help as we live in a world that is adamant in its rebellion against you. We live in a world that wants to indoctrinate us in, in the opposite of what your word has said. And God, we confess that we get caught up in the thinking of, of the culture around us so easily. Sometimes we don't realize how, how we've grown to to buy into the lies of tolerance and, and that we, without realizing it, allow truth to be watered down. But God, we hear Jesus' words here. God, we hear his correction. Father, we do not want to be those who, who are uh, believing the deep things of Satan. Instead, we want to be those who believe the clear things of your word. And so, Father, we come to you once again humbly asking that you would change our minds, that you would renew our minds with your word, that you would teach us and that you would help us to be able to discern what is true from what is false in the culture that, that we're surrounded with. 
And God, ultimately, we come to you, we, we ask that you would not just allow us to believe your word like taking a, a giant pill of medicine, but instead help us to believe your word with rejoicing hearts, knowing that your design is good, knowing that your ways are good, knowing that your word is good. Help us to rejoice as we believe it. And God, beyond all this, we thank you that 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 you not only have given us your word written down, but you gave us the word in the flesh, your son, Jesus, who is the Christ, the son of God. And we thank you that he died to pay the price for our sins, that he was resurrected so that we now have life in him. Lord, we cast our hope upon him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. And as we cast our hope on Jesus, let's remind ourselves and each other of the work that he has accomplished. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Would you stand with me this morning as we sing again? Come behold the wondrous mystery. Of deliverance, how unwavering. 
resurrected as will we be when he comes how unwavering our hope christ in power resurrected what an amazing reality and what a wondrous mystery to contemplate and to behold Thank you for worshiping with me this morning. Now, as is our practice, we are going to end with one more song. And as we do, we've got a couple of dashing gentlemen who will meander about the room with these little black buckets that you see by the stage and by the doors. These are for our connection cards and for any offerings you might have. If you are a guest with us, I would encourage you, give us one of those connection cards. Let us start a conversation with you. And thank you for joining us this morning. And if you have prayer, I don't care who you are. If you have gray hair, or if you have no hair, if you have great height, or if you have no height, we are to be a praying people. So let us lift up one another in prayer. And thank you for those that do give generously and partner with us supporting this mission. Now, our last song is carefully chosen before I knew what he was preaching about. We are going to sing about our Jesus our mediator between God and man, the one where our offerings, our prayers, our best foot forward is nothing more than dirty rags in the sight of the Father. But because of the work and the blood of Jesus, he sees the perfection of his son who lived a sinless life. There is one God. There is one mediator. Let's sing his praises. takes our place and stands in front of God on high. He speaks on our behalf since we don't have the right. He pleads before the God who judges hearts of men. Our mediator serves the sentence for our sin. Let's sing. There is only one God. And there is Captives broke the bondage of our chase. We have redemption through the price that he has paid. He gave his life to purchase freedom from the fall. Our mediator was the ransom for us all. And there is only one God. There is only one mediator. Messiah has come. 